0: Time to Travel with Karin Key, And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Councillor Gareth Bloor, Mayoral Committee Member for Tourism, Events and Economic Development here in Cape Town, and Colette van Aswierchen, Marketing Manager for the Table Mountain Aerial Cableway Company, about the upcoming Responsible Tourism Week in Cape Town. Dr. Bruno Wirtz will be on the line, and he's the CEO of AMIR, which stands for the African Institute for Marine and Underwater Research, Exploration and Education. And I'm rather excited about this one because we'll be talking about the rather exciting search they'll be undertaking to try and locate the wreck and survivor camp of the VOC ship Harlem, which ran aground near the shores of Table Bay in 1647. And then I'll be chatting with Christian Fora, Vice President Commercial for Menzies Aviation, about the upcoming launch of South Africa's first open access arrivals lounge at OR Tambo Airport. And of course it's the first of the AFCON semi-finals, so we'll be catching up with Mo Ali throughout the show for the latest scores. And then, just like my Law Report and Health Matters programs, there's now a short list of available documents for time to travel. You can find them on Facebook. Just go to travel on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, post a message there. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. If you don't have access to Facebook, you can drop me a line to travel at SAFM.co.za and I'll send you the list and you can choose which one of those you'd like. Well that's the lineup for this evening I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM Time to travel on SAFM Well, 2015 is the fifth year for Responsible Tourism Week in Cape Town. It's an annual week of focused attention that brings together tourism businesses, learners and communities in Cape Town to spread awareness of sustainable practices and ethical methods within the tourism sector. And joining me this evening are Councillor Gareth Bleuer, Mayoral Committee Member for Tourism, Events and Economic Development here in Cape Town, and Colette van Aswierchen, Marketing Manager for the Table Mountain Aerial Cableway Company. Gareth and uh, Colette, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Kevin. This is always very exciting. I love this responsible tourism week because I think we all should have been doing this a long time ago. But Gareth, just explain for those who aren't quite sure what we mean by responsible tourism.
1: Sure. So responsible tourism is, is, is tourism is essentially a week that has got participants around the world that's been going for around seven years that promotes really travel that is responsible and that is sustainable. The responsibility referring to the local communities in which you travel and the sustainability around the environmental factors of travel, especially in a world where so many people are getting the opportunity to go beyond their cities, beyond their borders. And really what it is is an event that Cape Town is very, very fortunate and proud to be able to participate in, following our own responsible tourism policies, as well as our engagements and partnership with others around the world.
0: This, I think, also follows on very much from the way travel has changed, though, because it used to always be a destination travel, whereas now it's becoming more of an experiential type thing, where you go to somewhere you don't just want to go and see all the usual things. You want to actually experience life in the country you're going to visit.
1: That's certainly right. I mean, if you were to even just look at the pure economics of it, we're in a world where cities are competing with each other on so many levels, and tourism, without doubt, is one of those main levels. So if you look at the whole experience that comes with traveling to a destination where you've got an appreciation of the culture, of the local ways of doing things, uh, and really immersing oneself in that, you immediately have a unique experience that's authentically human and that is in and of itself set aside. And so beyond that important intrinsic component of tourism, you, of course, have a very real economic driver, which is that people are looking for something more than just the generic sort of hospitality experience, which arguably you can get in almost every single city if you do the most general base aspects of tourism or running a hotel or running a tourism related destination so i think that's a very exciting aspect of it it not only makes social sense but it's got very real economic implications that i think industry is certainly responding to very very well Uh, and that certainly has been our experience as far as cape town goes and all our engagements with stakeholders across the board in all aspects of the value chain
0: now one thing that nobody can find anywhere else in the world is our very own natural wonder table mountain colette what a wonderful place to work
2: um, yes, I am quite fortunate <laughs> to be working at Table Mountain.
0: So, how do you fall into Responsible Tourism Week? What do you do at the aerial at Table Mountain Aerial Cableway Company?
2: Well, you know, responsible tourism um, is at the heart of everything that we do at um, at Table Mountain. Um, we work. We are situated, you know, on a mountain. We're part of a World Heritage Site and also now a natural wonder. And with that accolade, there's a whole lot of other responsibility that comes with that. But not just because of these accolades, um, the cableway has um, been involved in in all matter of responsible tourism over the last couple of years since the, the big upgrade that we had um, in 1997. Some of the um, uh, uh, measures that we've taken you know, can certainly be divided up un- under the three pillars of responsible tourism, um, and they are that of um, environmental responsibility. We look at the way that we manage and use water on the mountain, and um, for example, uh, uh, on the mountain, that, uh, we've got very special toilets, recycled toilets that recycle water from the hand basins for flushing. And measures like that help to manage resources on the mountain um, so that we don't use as much water as we would normally do.
0: The other thing, Colette, though, that I do know is that everything that goes up the mountain has to come back down the mountain. I mean, that's quite a big thing as well. And one of the big things I know with a mountain and with loads, hundreds, thousands of people going up there, that must also have quite an impact when it comes to litter and all those sorts of things as well.
2: Yes, yeah. You know, waste management is also something that we do focus our attention on. Um, We're quite proud in that we've got recyclements throughout our facility. So waste is separated at source. Over the last five years, we've been increasing the amount of waste that we are recycling. And as a result, we're sending less waste to landfill.
0: Gareth, I was reading some information about most, well, not most, but some, many, if I I get my terminology correct. Many hotels and tour operators and other businesses have actually gone through a sustainable certification program. What exactly is that?
1: Sure, that requires really meeting and understanding how to implement various basic standards around sustainability with a big focus on the carbon emissions and then also elements of local, local procurement that really ensure that when you have that tourism experience you have got from that commercial transaction For example, as a tourist, a sense that you've certainly made a very solid value-based contribution to the local economy while, of course, addressing the carbon emissions issue, which is the big global question and global factor at the heart of responsible tourism. And the interesting thing is that many people will think, well, some sort of certification that's requiring additional cost uh, over the long term. But in fact, what's made the most sense is that people are seeing returns on that, just on the pure financial modeling that are happening as more and more people start to become conscious consumers. who are willing to look for products in a market that they go to, that they know are essentially benefiting the community, that they're being a part of for that period of time that they're a tourist. So I think that the certification process is one that's gaining a lot of ground and becoming a sort of standardization of just the sort of basic minimum uh, when it comes to having a responsible tourism venture.
0: When it comes to being... (sighs) real green. I mean, a lot of people say they're green, but you sort of look at what they're doing and you think, well, mm, not really. But uh, the people that I've had on the show more than once are the people from Hotel Verde. And I mean, if you're talking about going green, they really have gone green.
1: They certainly are. And they've proved it in the success that they've got. The number of times... I get invited to a particular event that is a conference, and it's being hosted at that hotel for that particular reason, uh, anecdotally, is incredibly high. If you look at the international recognition, too, uh, increasingly people are saying, here's the standard that we want to apply across the board, and so when you decide you're going to host a conference or take a delegation, you look for places that have got those accolades, and they've certainly made Cape Town proud, coming out as one of the top globally in London last year, mm. along with the VNA waterfront, which is the most environmentally sustainable destination in the world right here in Cape Town, South Africa. So I think the way we've seen our market actors respond to this has been truly phenomenal without government force or government intervention, freely saying we're going to become part of this. We're going to market our South African tourism experience as one that really appeals to global values. Um, and I think that's been amazing.
0: Colette, the whole impact of being green and being sustainable and being eco-conscious and all those things, must play does, do you think it has a big impact on your visitors when they come to the mountain?
2: Um, Yes, it certainly has. And um, like like Gareth says, you know, uh, more and more it's becoming more of a decision maker for people to visit attractions and sites that um, offer uh, tourism in a responsible manner. So uh, people look at the resource management of sites, um, that social responsibility, what sort of investment is made in terms of staff, etc and then also in terms of procurement you know um, what sort of products are being sourced locally etc uh, it's all quite important for visitors um, who are looking more at
0: experience see this is what I think people don't understand when you mention going green or being sustainable you think oh well you know as long as I recycle and I make sure I'm using grey water for something but you go further you're talking about procurement, being proudly South African I mean it's a much bigger picture than just what we sometimes think as the basically green things.
2: Indeed it is, yes, yeah and we all have a responsibility to contribute to skills development and upskilling of staff and providing opportunity to improve uh, the living arrangements
0: of people Gareth, I was looking at the program do tell, I love the thing that's happening on the 13th of February, the flash mob, what are you doing? Responsible Tourism Week flash mob at the VNA waterfront
1: well, what we really want to do is take what is currently the most visitors tourist attraction in the country and create awareness for the general public and tourists uh, who are also visiting the city at the time and mainstream responsible tourism to allow the flash mob to re- reach respective audiences and to really create awareness for people who might not be listening to the show or come across the concept um, or, or maybe they've heard of it but they don't quite understand. so it's going to be one of many events happening across the city um, and not the only flash mob, but of course um, it's going to be just a big boost. I just want to make touch on another point, if hmm, I may, and that geez. is upward mobility that is offered when companies commit themselves to responsible tourism. One thing that fascinated me is the way in which you've got such a low barrier to entry when it comes to getting into the tourism sector and the number of success stories there are with responsible tourism where individuals are able to work themselves up. Um, I just was at a hotel um, about two weeks ago where, after three months, one individual who before had been unemployed had already been promoted to the post of assistant manager. And it's really about the development of people and showing Capetonians and South Africans that the tourism industry is not just for other people who can afford something um, and the jobs are mostly low skilled. It is about offering that opportunity for personal development and thereby making tourism something that's attractive and something that unlocks opportunities for the people you're at home. And I think, I think that's a really critical component um, that must be highlighted.
0: So being responsible, is across the board in almost every possible way when it comes to tourism. I don't think there's any area of tourism that you're not not dealing with.
1: We really are trying to tackle each and every one, and how we've done that is condense it into a responsible tourism charter, which is available on the City of Cape Town website and which many, many people have already subscribed to. And that really lays it out for anybody, whether you're a tourist, whether you're just a Cape-tonian who knows this is an industry that's such a part of our city, or whether, in fact, you're looking to get into the industry or you're in it already, if you just go to capetown.gov.za, forward slash responsible tourism it's all laid out there and we've got so many senior leaders who've signed on to it from the mayor down at government and of course from CEOs and others across the industry and I think that's a nice consensus building document it's a sort of social compact um, between everybody who's touched in some way by the tourism industry and not just people who are directly involved on a day-to-day
0: basis. So who's flying in you've got a big seminar happening at the two oceans on I think it's the 11th?
1: That's right, we're going to kick off there with a massive stakeholder-related event from across the tourism industry, accommodation establishments will be represented, government will certainly be there, and then NGOs and any interested individuals who are thinking this is a concept that attracts me, I'm considering getting into tourism, or I'm just very curious from a sort of active citizenry perspective, it will happen at the Two Oceans Aquarium between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. You can Google the event, it's Responsible Tourism Week Seminar, and it will come up. But as mentioned last time, if anyone wants more information, they can always phone my office directly, 21 400 The essence of these sorts of events is to maximize the participation by people and keep it as open as is possible and also then to get feedback on what it is that people are looking to get involved in so we can refer them to the appropriate organizations that do exist that are focused on development the carbon emissions issue um, how you do your local procurement um, so create a critical mass using events like these to bring people together
0: it's rather exciting because it's almost like not going to work and they always say if you have fun it's not really work <laughs> Indeed,
2: that is quite true, yes.
0: And I'm sure you do that every day. Have fun.
2: Yes, loads of fun. Really lovely to engage with visitors, both from overseas and also local South Africans. It's really proud to engage with South Africans and with very proud Capetonians.
0: Oh, yes. And I always like to just always add this for anybody who's coming to Cape Town, always here now, on your birthday, I'm hoping this is still correct, Colette, if, as long as you produce your green barcoded ID, you can go up Table Mountain for free. Is that still correct?
2: Indeed, yes. Yeah, You have to be 18 years and older. Mm. So on your birthday, whether the cableway is running or not, please come to the cableway with your barcoded ID and we'll scan the ID and you'll get your free ticket and that you uh, that is valid for a period of seven days.
0: Wow. Okay, so if you've never been up the mountain, which honestly is an experience in itself, on your birthday, you can go up for free as long as you take your ID book with you. Colette and Gareth, thank you both very much indeed for joining us. And I wish you much success with this uh, big festival week coming up. It's a festival, it's, it's a responsible tourism week, but it almost sounds like a festival, what with a flash mob and everything. So have a good time. I hope it's very successful. I'm sure it will be once again. And thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening.
2: Thanks very much for this opportunity, Karen.
0: Only a pleasure, Gareth. Thank you thank very you much. Thank so, you so much. Great. Thank you. Good night to you. Night. Councillor Gareth Bleuer is the Mayoral Committee Member for Tourism, Events and Economic Development here in Cape Town and Colette van Aswirchen is the Marketing Manager for the Table Mountain Aerial Cableway Company. For more information on Responsible Tourism Week in Cape Town, you can take a look at the website. It's responsiblecapetown.co.za and the Facebook is facebook.com forward slash responsible tourism. Well, it's time now for some news from AFCON and tonight it's the first of the semi-finals, and it's between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Ivory Coast, or I say the leopards and the elephants and they're hoping to get through to win well ivory coast is hoping to get through to win their second title at afcon mo good evening how's it going there
3: very good evening to you karen i can tell you good news uh, for the elephants l'elephant as they are known to their fans they lead by a to tunnel just before you came to us a thunderous shot from their captain yaya toure and uh, from just outside the penalty area the kind of goals he scores regularly for his club side manchester city in england and uh, his first goal of the tournament he's made a slow start to the tournament and uh, lots of criticism about his uh, commitment but uh, I tell you what what a goal he has scored to give his side the lead after 20 minutes and that was after the first chance went the way of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo as early as the sixth minute when uh, Jerry Bokila had his shot saved at the near post by the Ivorian goalkeeper, Sylvain Bahu, and uh, the rebound falling uh, to Diomercy Mbokani, but uh, his volley flow from close range uh, going over the uh, crossbar, but uh, it's not unfamiliar territory, this uh, four. The uh, Congolese, because remember in the quarter-final they were 2-0 down and came to win that game by uh, four goals to two. But I can tell you the Ivory Coast are a completely different uh, entity to the Congolese because they've got some seriously big names. Not only in African football but in world football Do the Ivorians. The likes of uh, Wolfreed Boni, Yaya Toure and uh, Kolo Toure in their ranks and uh, they are aiming for a third final in uh, the last uh, Six Nations Cup, and they certainly are on their way towards doing that. After 22 minutes, it's the Ivory Coast 1, the Democratic Republic of Congo 0.
0: Time to travel on SAFM. Well, links between the Netherlands and South Africa date back to the 17th century. And the search is on for the shipwreck of the Dutch East India Company vessel, the Harlem, which ran aground near the shores of Table Bay in March 1647. The search is a mutual Dutch-South African project that will explore some of these very important historic links and hopefully take them a lot further. Well, joining me this evening is Dr. Bruno Vert, CEO of AMUR. I'm not quite sure how to say that part. It's AMUR. But what it stands for is the African Institute for Marine and Underwater Research Exploration and Education. Dr. Wirtz, good evening, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mrs. Gings. Please call me Karen and I've been looking forward to chatting to you for days. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. I don't think, you know, the Harlem is not something that I think a lot of us really know about and for us here in Cape Town, it came to the fore in a rather negative way I think last year when a new restaurant was opening in the company's garden and it was they were going to call it the Harlem. And there was a big outcry about this because people thought they couldn't call it that because this was a slave ship that brought slaves to Africa, or to South Africa. And it turned out um, that this wasn't true. It was misinformation. But the name the Harlem has suddenly become talked about because now everybody's finding out exactly what the Harlem is all about. Tell me the story of the Harlem.
4: <laughs> Do you have two days? <laughs> well, yes, yes, please. <laughs> now, the, the Harlem uh, was a East India company ship that was founded on uh, the eastern shores of Table Bay in 1647. And uh, part of the crew was uh, rescued and taken back to the Netherlands, together with uh, part of the cargo that was uh, transferred with the ship. But uh, 62 people stayed behind, uh, with the uh, order to try and save as much as possible of the merchandise, and they built a survivor camp, and they spent about a year on the shores of Table Bay and during this time they came into contact with indigenous people and um, this story is as she's already said very well unknown and uh, basically it was the prelude to Jan van coming to the Cape because what the Dutch East India Company decided after these people were rescued and they returned back to the Netherlands They uh, lodged a report, a very favorable report, on the natural conditions at the Cape, uh, indicating that a lot of uh, fruit and vegetables could be uh, grown there, that there was plenty of uh, fresh water, which was of course important for the ships uh, plying the trade routes between the Netherlands and the East Indies, and that also the contacts with the indigenous people were positive. And this, uh, in contrast to previous connections with Portuguese seafarers mainly, that always ended in uh, bloodshed and disagreement. So the founding of the Harlem signifies basically the origins of Cape Town and thus also the origins of the current rainbow nation.
0: You know, we all talk about we all, I think most of us have learned at school, 1652, and that was sort of where we started. We didn't ever start back in 1647, which is now effectively telling us when we should be starting the history of the Cape.
4: Well, that is the uh, privilege of historians dealing mm. with documents, dealing with archaeological remains, is that we are in a privileged position to try and rectify misconceptions that uh, may exist. And uh, during the course of the last 25 years, on and off, I've been doing research into this event. And uh, yes, I think it's time to set the historical record straight. History in South Africa, Western history in South Africa, didn't start with Jan van Hiebeek. It started way before. And uh, the Haarlem was one of those significant moments. The founding of the Haarlem resulted in the first proper contacts with indigenous people and led, finally, to the establishment of uh, the origins of Cape Town.
0: Now, a lot of what we know about that foundering of, of the Harlem and also what happened after that was thanks very much to a junior merchant, Leander Janser, who I think was one of the the people left behind, and he was sort of in charge of the men that were left here to salvage what was left on the ship, which by all accounts was mostly pepper. But I, I was reading that and I thought, gosh, and at one point it got quite bad and they couldn't even get into the ship itself. Because of the the smell on the, the hold was so bad.
4: That is correct. Uh, Lender Johns was put in charge together with the first mate of the ship, Klaus Winkles. And uh, they were tasked to try and save as much as me- merchandise as possible. And as I said previously, they stayed on the shores of Cape uh, Table Bay for about a year. And in that period, they tried to save as much of the merchandise as possible. And... The majority of the trade goods carried on board was pepper. They uh, salvaged uh, quite a, an amount of pepper. And, uh, well, I just wonder what, uh, <laughs> what good it was, because, yes. of course, that uh, pepper had to be stored and uh, had to be uh, left for a period of a year before being salvaged and brought back to the Netherlands. But there were some other trade goods as well. For example, sugar from candy, and that's where we get our word candy sugar from. Mm. Indigo, a blue dye used in the coloring of textiles, but also some Chinese porcelains, most of which uh, were damaged during the process of foundry.
0: What, what fascinated me when I was reading the story was how many other ships were coming past here all the time. You know, you, we don't hear about these other ships, and a lot of them stopped. And um, and the junior merchant Leander Jans, he actually went to go and visit them. And they all came and had a little you know, get-together every time another one came by.
4: That is correct. Uh, although those uh, visits were uh, uh, quite far between, mm. uh, it could take half a year before another ship visited. Yes. And, of course, at the time, communication was not as we experience in our modern-day world. There was no email, there was no phone. And uh, all the events that uh, happened uh, were recorded in documents that were transferred by visiting ships. So, uh, you must imagine that every half a year or so, uh, ships visited Table Bay on the way out to Batavia, present-day Jakarta in Indonesia, or on the way back to uh, Europe. And when the Haarlem found it, the ship was not on its own. There were two other Dutch East India Company ships, the Olifant and the Schiedam. But there were also some English uh, vessels visiting. And those English vessels took some documentation that uh, Leander Johns produced back to Europe. And that documentation was forwarded from London to the Dutch East India Company offices in Amsterdam. So there was quite a. A, a network going on but of course the time frame was not as we know it nowadays.
0: So I mean the whole of his journal though didn't survive but a large portion of, of, of uh, Leander Jan's journal did survive and that's where a lot of this information is coming from.
4: That is correct but also from another document that was produced when the last people of the Highland 62 people that stayed behind were finally rescued by a returning fleet from Batavia in April 1648. And this fleet took the remainder of the crew, plus the goods that were salvaged, on board. And they finally returned on the 7th and 8th of August, 1648, in the Netherlands. And when they arrived, uh, these people were interrogated by the Dutch East India Company. Because, of course, uh, there was a major uh, financial uh, crisis in the way that a a ship carrying very rich cargo was lost. And the Dutch East Indie Company, which mainly uh, revolves around making profit, was investigating the reasons for its sinking and uh, interrogated these people in detail. And at the same time, Leander Jans and somebody else, uh, a guy called Proet, called they uh, produced a report uh, which indicated how well suited the Cape was. As a stopover, as a refreshment station for ships plying those straight routes between the Netherlands and the East, and already for years the Dutch East India Company had a desire to uh, establish such a uh, refreshment station because when the ships arrived either in the Netherlands or in the East, a lot of the people on board were sick as a reason uh, for being malnourished and uh, because of a lack of fresh drinking water. And based on the report that uh, Linda Johns and uh, Mr. Prote produced, the Dutchies and the company finally decided to establish a refreshment station at the foot of Table Mountain. And that turned into uh, present-day
0: Cape Town. The one thing I wasn't terribly impressed about was the fact that when they were eventually rescued a year later, they decided to burn what was left of the, what, the, above the water part of the Harlems, which is not making your life at this point looking for it that much easier. They went and burnt it.
4: That is correct, and they did that for the specific reason of uh, trying to avoid another disaster in the way that the ships were marooned on the shores of Table Bay. And, of course, a wreck lying in the path of another ship trying to get to shore would uh, possibly cause disaster. So for that reason, they uh, burned whatever was uh, sticking above the surface.
0: Now, you're looking for the wreck of the Harlem, but the one problem that comes in here, though, I was also quite (laughs) absolutely amazed that there's, I was reading some information that says there were at least 34 shipwrecks which occurred in that exact area, but there may well be, it may well be as high as 94, because 94 wrecks occurred in the general area of Table Bay, but they weren't exactly specified where exactly in the Table Bay they were. So there could be 94 wrecks in the area that you're looking for the Harlem.
4: That is correct. And for that reason, uh, we have to uh, do a geophysical survey. And uh, based on that, uh, and of course, the area that we're going to search uh, in has been uh, narrowed down through the information that has been provided by the historical documentation and also cartographic material. But uh, we have earmarked a certain spot uh, or a certain section of coastline And in that area, we will undertake uh, intensive geophysical surveys first, hopefully followed by uh, test excavations. And that will reveal if a potential target uh, might indicate the wreck of the Harlem or not.
0: Now, once you do find the wreck, there are some things on board, hopefully still, that will indicate that this is the Harlem, some really big things that have been left behind on the Harlem.
4: That is correct. The historical documentation indicates that at the time 19 heavy iron cannons and four big anchors could not be salvaged from the wreck. And of course these uh, provide a signature that uh, will indicate uh, when we undertake the geophysical survey if uh, there is enough uh, iron material in the subsoil. And uh, that will hopefully give us an indication of the wreck And once uh, we are allowed to undertake test excavations, then uh, there are some other indications that uh, will provide positive identification of the shipwreck. By ways of, for example, uh, the student section of the ship uh, must be severely damaged because when the Harlem found it, when it uh, was cast ashore, the people that remained to recover as much of the cargo as possible fired five cannon shots at the stern section the back section of the ship in order to ventilate the cargo hold because the the pepper was fermenting and uh, caused combustion so there were um, deadly toxins uh, deadly gases uh, coming from the hold and in order to ventilate they uh, fired gunshots at the stern so what we're looking at is a shipwreck that is burned to the waterline with a severely damaged thun containing 19 iron cannons and four heavy anchors. And it should give uh, positive identification of the shipwreck.
0: Dr. Wurtz, I still want to talk to you more about the actual project and the proposed plan of action and what's coming up soon, but we just need to take a quick crossing over to AFCON to see what's happening in the soccer. Please, would you mind holding the line just for a couple of minutes? Not at all. Thank you. Right, well, let's go back to uh, Mo Ali now and see what's happening in the first of the AFCON semi-finals: Congo, DR Congo and Ivory Coast. Mo, I'm backing Ivory Coast. How are we doing?
3: Well, I can tell you, Karen that it is 1-0. Remember last week and the week before we struggled for goals in this program? Well, we've got two already, and uh, the, Co- uh, Cote the Cote d'Ivoire taking the lead uh, early in the game after 19 minutes uh, through Yaya Toure with that uh, terrific strike from the edge of the area. But uh, the Congolese are back on level terms. Uh, th- uh, that lead lasting only 90 seconds. Diomese Mbokani with his third goal of the tournament, a penalty that was conceded by the Ivorians. And uh, Bokani coolly netting the ball into the uh, left-hand corner of the net uh, to level matters at one all and the last time these two teams met, it actually ended in a 4-3 victory for the uh, Congolese in Abidjan. So they certainly don't fear the Ivorians at all who are of course the favorites. So eight and a half minutes to go to a halftime, it's the Ivory Coast One, the Democratic Republic of Congo 1
0: we well, we'll, we'll catch up with you a little bit later but please just make sure that Ivory Coast gets some more goals the reason they aren't scoring too many more is because Didier Drogba is not playing at the moment. <laughs> got Boney. Yeah. yeah but I'm not complaining because di- he's my favorite player and he plays for Chelsea so that's fine he's playing at the moment. So I have I can't have it both ways playing for Ivory Coast and Chelsea. So you know
3: yeah, well, he's, he's an absolute legend, but he's <laughs> failed to win the Africa Cup of Nations, and who knows, Wilfred Bonnie comes along and uh, wins hope. the Africa Cup of Nations at the first attempt. Well,
0: we'll speak to you later. I hope you'll have some more goals on the Ivory Coast side for me later. Thanks, Mo. Right, Dr. Verz, as we were saying about our fabulous exploration in Table Bay, tell me about the joint cooperation project with yourselves and with an organization called The Missing Link.
4: The Missing Link is a Dutch organization It's a consultancy agency for archeological projects and public education. And it's quite a unique concept and we uh, made contact uh, quite a while ago. And the Missing Link proposes to uh, take the information that we hope to recover while excavating the Haarlem to take it a level further. Normally archeological projects are executed and then the results are published in academic journals. So um, way out of reach of the general public. But what we hope to do with the involvement of the Missing Link is to provide a full package of public inform- information, public participation through websites, through apps, through uh, public participation in this project. Because it's a common identity. It's a common... The Harlem Project is... Uh, a common project between all the people of South Africa and the Netherlands. And uh, we hope to provide further information and make this information suitable for um, digestion um, amongst various sections of society. Uh, as a public relations project, it's very important. It will emphasize the links between the Netherlands and South Africa. As I said, it signifies the birth of the Rainbow Nation, so, in fact, it's of essence to all South Africans. But we would like to take this further as a public education program for schools, for the public in general. And the Missing Link will hopefully provide us with the infrastructure and the way of uh, making this information uh, more valuable, valuable to everybody.
0: Now this project is in a number of different phases and I know the closer you get to the actual excavation looking for the Harlem, you're going to be doing environmental impact studies and all sorts of getting national heritage involved, all those sorts of things as well. So people are worried about you just going out there and digging. Um, It's all being done to the letter. Everything is being put in place correctly for this.
4: Absolutely. In the past I've been... uh Referred to as a stickler to the rules, and of course uh, one has to. The rules are there not for nothing. Uh, we have to abide by all the national, uh, local, provincial legislation, and uh, that entails the application of a permit from the Department of Customs and Excise to apply for a permit from the provincial legislation, to apply for a permit from the South African National or Heritage Resources Agency, the Sahara. And, uh, of course, all these organizations are there to protect and to preserve what is there uh, as far as our national and international heritage is concerned. So we apply for all the necessary permits. We will uh, enter into discussions and talks with the uh, the relevant uh, authorities. And everything will be done above board. We hope that uh, the media will play an active role in advertising the project, but also reporting on the project, on progress being made, or possibly delays being incurred. And uh, in that way, it becomes a national project. And uh, everybody in South Africa and overseas will be informed in detail about progress being made.
0: I have to ask you, what is the budget for something like this?
4: Well, we compiled an ideal budget and I stressed the fact that it is an ideal budget. If we want to do everything that we envisage, the full excavation of the wreck, the public education aspect, which is a major part of this, then we're looking at a, a round figure of about six to six and a half million rand. Wow. This sounds great, but compared to any other Projects being undertaken nationally, on a provincial level, it's not that much. But as I said, it's an ideal project, uh, an ideal budget, sorry. And uh, we hope to, in due time, to get local authorities involved. For example, excavating the shipwreck involves the use of mechanical diggers. Now I can imagine that the local municipality would be interested in uh, lending a hand. With this, that will already m- indicate a major slice in the budget. But uh, as I said, it's an ideal budget uh, for a project of this nature, a project of this significance. I think it's not too much asked. But again, it's an ideal budget, and I'm sure that uh, by begging, I wouldn't say stealing,
5: <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and borrowing, we uh, hope to. Uh, to undertake this project uh, with less expenses.
0: The thing about something like this, though, is once you have uncovered it, I mean, is it going to be there for people to see? Are you going to rebury it afterwards? Um, Is it going to be some sort of a tourism attraction in some form, some way, somehow?
4: What would happen, as we envisage it, is that during the first stage, after the geophysical survey has been done, after all the necessary permits have been acquired, And after we have been given uh, the go-ahead to do exploratory excavations, we hope to earmark certain uh, targets, as we call them. Now, if those targets indicate that that might well be the, the wreck of the Harlem, then we hope to do a little bit more exploratory work to identify the wreck with certainty. And if that happens, then we're going to cover it up. Then the next year or so will be used to uh, acquire sufficient support for a further excavation. And that ideally should be a full excavation of the site with uh, recording in various ways, by means of video, still photography, uh, laser scan surveys, so that we can acquire a three-dimensional model of the wreck and its contents. And then the wreck will be buried again because uh, to try and preserve uh, a wreck of this magnitude would uh, incur much more <laughs> finance mm. than uh, we're looking after. But what would happen then is that uh, through the missing link, we hope to establish a monument on the side. A monument that will not only be a brass plaque, as was uh, common in the, in the past, but also... A uh, electronic device that people that pass by can uh, download an app, and that hopefully that app will give them a reconstruction of the current situation uh, of the wreck being excavated, but also a reconstruction of how the ship in 1647 came ashore.
0: Now, your organization, as I mentioned, was AMURE, A-I-M-U-R-E, and there is a website, amure.org. And I was on there the other day, and there are a lot of other things that you're looking for as well, or have discovered. I mean, it's not just this.
4: That is correct. Uh, the AMURE was established uh, two and a half years ago because of a lack of uh, infrastructure for maritime studies in Southern Africa. And in the past, uh, we have been involved in in various projects, and we would like to take this further. Basically, what EMU stands for is Maritime Studies, Marine Studies, uh, specifically orientated towards Maritime Archaeology, but not limited to Maritime Archaeology. But uh, a very important part of the history of this nation and other neighboring states lies underwater. And uh, so far, very limited uh, attempts have been made to study this history, to reconstruct this history, and to bring it back to the people, because that is basically what history is about. It's everybody's history, and what we intend doing is to bring back parts of this history to the people.
0: Well, honestly, if you like me, who is absolutely fascinated by anything historical, go and have a look at this website. Dr. Vertz, am I correct in thinking I saw this right? There were some arrowheads on your website, and it said that they have been, it's been said of them that they are the oldest arrowheads of that type found underwater.
4: Uh, I'm sorry if I have to correct you.
0: Okay, please do, because I, I <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I got that right. Uh,
4: they are not arrowheads. Oh, sorry, yes they are stone tools stone tools uh, yes, yes, that's axes. right
0: okay right
4: and uh, they date to the Acheulean, which is a geological period in the Earth's history and uh, they were found in table bay while i was ex- excavating the shipwreck of the Oostland and the shipwreck of the Wadding two other duchies and the New company ships in the early 1990s and this was a joint project uh, with the people that discovered those wrecks uh, Mr. Michael Barchart, Christopher Burns, and Graham Rainer. And uh, while excavating the shipwreck, I was studying the stratigraphy, the sequential building up of layers underneath the sh- uh, shipwrecks. And uh, lo and behold, uh, reaching bedrock, I uh, discovered a specific layer of earth, a, r- a reddish-brown layer that indicates an old land surface. Now... You must imagine that, of course, during the geological history of the Earth, uh, the sea levels have been changing. And uh, in the past, uh, the sea level was much lower than today. So at some stage, Table Bay was dry land, it was a, a delta. And in the distant past, hunter gatherers, the uh, ancestors of us nowadays, hunted in that area. They butchered carcasses that they found. And uh, during one of those forests, um, hand axes were left behind. They were stone tools, uh, comparable to uh, Swiss Army knife, multiple, multi-usable objects. And um, some of those were left behind, and uh, I had the privilege of finding them. And later research and support from academics overseas indicated that those were the oldest and still are, the oldest stone tools ever found underwater in the world.
0: Well, like I said, go and have a look at this website. You will be fascinated. Dr. Vert, it has been an absolute honor to chat with you, and please do keep us in touch and tell us how things are going, because I'd love to follow this exploration and see how the project is doing.
4: It was a great pleasure. And thank you very much for the opportunity to and,
0: chat to you. And we'll chat again, hopefully not too distant future. Dr. Bruno Wirtz is CEO of the African Institute for Marine and Underwater Research, Exploration and Education. For more information on the work of Amur and to find out more about the Harlem Project, you can take a look at the website. It's www.emure.org. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, Oratambo International Airport will soon be home to the first arrivals lounge in South Africa that is open to all travellers, regardless of airline or travel class. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined this evening by Christian Foro, Vice President, Commercial for Menzies Aviation, the operator of the Keely Lounge. Christian, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corinne. It's good to speak to you again. Yes, it's been a while, but this, this I mean, I, you know, us people who fly regular class. We don't fly business or first. We don't really ever have the opportunity to go to special lounges. And now you're telling us that this is open to travelers of all all travel classes.
5: Well, certainly. And that's one of the most important things, um, especially for the long-haul flight. Mm. Um, you know, not many of us get to choose business class or, or you know, have that luxury. Um, and that was one of the target markets that we're aiming at. Is to enable those regular long-haul passengers for a, for a very reasonable fee, certainly compared to the European markets, to come in and fresh up, freshen up, um, and prepare for your day ahead. Uh, especially if you're on a long-haul flight from from the Europe, where you land in the relatively early morning, um, and your onward hotel booking wouldn't even be ready by that time. So you have very limited options normally.
0: Well, I've been looking at some photographs of what's coming because this is launching in April, if I'm correct. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Now, I've been looking at some photographs and I'm sort of wondering how you're actually going to get people to leave the lounge to go to the hotel.
5: Well, <laughs> that's <laughs> probably nice. I mean, I, I must admit, but the, the bathrooms are certainly of the top quality. Oh, it looks uh, fabulous. And we have actually, in fact, we have around about 21 of them uh, and a full bathroom bathroom shower facilities, so you have complete privacy mm-hmm. as well. Um, and they would be serviced after every visit as well, so which is rather important. So, so you have a rather unique experience.
0: So what can people do there other than freshening up? What can they lounge about? Doing what?
5: Well, uh, certainly you you, you you have everything that's available to you in a conventional departure lounge. So you have the Wi-Fi activities, you have you have meals on hand, uh, you have you know you have a full buffet service, uh, and and you can leisure until such time as you're ready to leave. Uh, and, you know, and if you if you onward the destination is a is a hotel room by that time, it should be ready, or you can you you can go into your final venue. Um, so everything that you're familiar with in a normal departure line would be available.
0: Now I also notice that it also says that it's also going to be open to walk-in travelers. What are those people?
5: Well, that is effectively what we're saying is for your normal for your normal passengers. that don't have the benefit of a of a, oh, okay. card, a ticket, for example. You can actually opt to purchase. Um, a walk-in visit, which is really value for money, if you certainly compare it to what you know, even even what a hotel room would cost you for the entire day, you know, for example.
0: Oh, okay, I see what you mean. All right, so this yeah. is this is an yeah. incoming lounge for 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 those who aren't sure what this is. This is for people arriving. But you al- you also do the, the sort of outgoing lounges as well. I think Shongalolo lounge. An yes, in
5: fact, well, we have two at our time. Mm. We have the Shongalolo lounge and the lounge. Mm. Uh and they both they both cater for both airlines and and walking travellers. And um, should you choose to do so, uh, they serve both the certain the certain airlines that they service. The one is also a smoking lounge. The Masonga lounge is a smoking lounge, so we find that certain clients prefer that. Um, but uh, As I previously said, the Shongalala lounge is rated the best airline lounge in Africa. Yes, you won that award um, last year. Yeah, well, mm. we won it twice in the yes. last few years. So it's certainly a world-class facility. And in fact, this new Testa lounge will be in the same vein, if not even better.
0: Do you find that people, I mean, obviously people coming on long-haul flights look for something like this. Do you find that they really make use of this, or do they just want to get out of the airport?
5: No. What we find is that the the real benefit is that you're on the same time zone, so you've pretty much stepped on the flight if you're lucky, um, and you need to prepare for your day ahead. And that is where the real benefit is, because you don't want to waste the day, uh, but you would like to arrive fresh, fresh. And, uh, and and ready for what's to come. And that's really where the real benefit of the arrivals lounge is. Um, because it's the same time zone, you would to get a lot of business passengers. It's not only your normal tourism passengers, but for business passengers that really want to hit the ground running. And we find there's a huge demand for that.
0: Gosh, and opening up in April, and people will be able to find this because it's, where is it? It's situated quite somewhere in, in, well, near the SAA's it's arrival it's lounge.
5: In fact, it's adjacent to the uh, SAA arrivals lounge. Um, and the lounge has been around some time. It's a very nice facility. Um, the only difference is that that's, that's dedicated to South African Airways customers, um, whereas we would, we would make it open to all international arrivals, including the, our airline customers that be service.
0: Oh, so you'll be very popular?
5: Well, hopefully, yes.
0: Because as you say, I mean, as, it's mainly for business travellers coming in. And as you said, what a difference it will make if they can freshen up instead of stumbling off the plane and getting into their cab or something and heading off to the meeting looking like they just got off the plane. Whereas now they can actually look all bright and perky like they've, you know, been here all, for a week.
5: Well, that's something we've always ended of the of the higher class travellers mm. and now it will be available to everyone. Absolutely. Uh, no, that's really what you're saying. Uh, at a first-class facility.
0: Gosh, well, that's amazing. I'm yeah. unfortunately this is for people coming in. So you know, go away, go off somewhere, and come back. And I'm sure if you arrive on a nice flight, you can go there.
5: Well, if you go out, you can use the other two lounges, which yes. have similar <laughs> facilities. it's not extensive ablution facilities
0: as the rival, So we we yeah. also have the opportunity now, which we've never had before. Of doing that, and I think it's going to really be quite, quite something when it opens up in April. What else have you got on the cards? I mean, because you know you've got this one, you've got the two, as you said, departure lounges, and the one arrivals. Any more?
5: Well, we still have the, we have the Durban we have the Durban um, lounge, um, which is also um, fairly underutilized at the moment because there the, the, the are rather limited international flights going out of there. Um, but we, we're trying to get some some interest in that lounge, because um, there are some international lines that are flying out of there. Uh, it would make much better sense to use that. And and that was also a rather uh, uh, lavish undertaking. Um, and we'd like to get some more more feed going through there. We also manage other lounges. We manage British Airways' lounge, for example. So, so although that's not our facility per se, we do manage it for, on their behalf in both Cape Town and in Johannesburg.
0: Well, next time anybody out there is listening that's flying internationally, please go and make use of these lounges. Sounds like it's the perfect place to go either before you go or when you come back. So, And if you're in Durban and flying out of the country, go and see what it's like. You were, they were Obviously, by this point, as uh, Christian is saying, there's not that many people there. Hopefully, after this, people will now know it's there and go. But in the meantime, go and have, enjoy it because it sounds like it could be just up your street, up, right up my street if I was going anywhere. Christian, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about that. And hopefully, people will go and visit your new Thank lounge. Thank you, Colin. Thanks good. so much. Thank you very Thanks. much. It's Good speaking to you. Again. Only Thank a you. pleasure. Good night to you. Bye bye. Christian Foray is vice president commercial for Menzies Aviation, the operator of the upcoming newly will be opened in April Keeley Lounge at Oatambo. For more information on Menzies Aviation, you can take a look at the website. It's menziesaviation.com. And it's time now for the last of our crossings to Afcon and the first semi final with DR Congo with Iron Ivory Coast Mo. Any more goals for me at Ivory Coast? You've
3: got your wish. Got <gasps> Thank that. you, Mo. But uh, the goal was scored by a former Arsenal player. I don't think you'd be too happy with that as a Chelsea fan. But uh, Javino, no. the man who uh, was so criticised when he was with Arsenal that he moved uh, to Roma in Italy, he's got the uh, second uh, for the Ivorians uh, four minutes before half time uh, to put the Ivorians into a two-one lead, and it was who also had a header cleared off the line by uh, Gabriel Zakwani, who plays his football for Peterborough in uh, England. But a very open and attractive game between these two francophone countries. And uh, given what we've seen in the first half, there's likely to be a few more goals in the second. So just to recap, it was uh, Yaya Toure uh, who opened the scoring for the Ivory Coast. He of Manchester City with a cracking shot from the edge of the penalty area to give uh, the Ivorians a 1-0 lead, but that lead lasted only for 90 seconds as it was uh, Diomatsi Mbokani, man who plays his club football for Dinamo Kiev in uh, Russia. He equalized uh, from the penalty spot, but uh, it was uh, Javinho with a lovely finish. Poor defending, it must be said, by the Congolese. It was a three-on-one situation, and uh, Javinio calmly slotting the ball past uh, the goalkeeper uh, to Robert Kiriaba to make the score 2-1 at uh, halftime. And the Ivorians looking good for a place in the final. It would be their third appearance in the last six Nations Cups if they eventually do get through to the final. So half time then, it's uh, the Ivory Coast 2, the Democratic Republic of Congo 1.
0: And if Ivory Coast win, this will be their second AFCON win, am I right? Yeah, they won in uh,
3: 1992 in a marathon penalty shootout against uh, Ghana, and that game was played in uh, Senegal, so uh, they are on the, uh, course uh, for a second Nations Cup triumph. Ghana last won the Nations Cup in 1982 so they've had a very long wait. Uh, They've won it four times and uh, they are favourites against Equatorial Guinea so it would be a a dream final if it were to be the Ivory Coast up against Ghana. Of course Ghana play Equatorial Guinea tomorrow evening.
0: Well thanks so much for the chats. This is our last one of the Avcon because the rest of the crossings I won't be here for those. It's in other people's programs but thanks so much for chatting with me over the last few weeks.
3: You're most welcome although you've ruined the friendship a little bit by admitting you're a Chelsea fan. Oh I'm very proudly (laughs) Chelsea. (laughs) Yeah, well, My team, Liverpool, are playing at the moment in the uh, FA Cup replay against Bolton Wonders, and I can tell you the score is goalless in that one. Oh
0: dear. Okay, well I'll, I'll read for you just for tonight. <laughs>
3: okay, thanks. Very thanks,
0: much. Mo. Good night to you. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And a reminder that if you need any information about something you've heard on the show tonight, you can find it on Facebook, Travel on SAFM, or email me on travel at SAFM.co.za. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening with the Law Report, and it's our monthly Law clinic with attorney nicolene Skuman low and just remember there's some available documents for time to travel there's things like 50 things to do under 100 rand. Sorry, 50 things to do in Cape Town for under 50 rand. There you go. Or 101 things to do and see on the West Coast. And there's a few other rather fascinating uh, little documents that you'd like to have. So if you'd like any of those, just drop me a mail or have a look on Facebook. But Stephen Kirk is there now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Karen. I was remembering getting wonderful fish and chips in Ronnebosch. I wonder if you can still get... uh uh, fish and chips for under fifty bucks—you should be able to. Oh, make, you can, yes. Uh, but I, I can tell you some fabulous places.
5: Oh, good!
2: I'm coming down, and you're going to um show me what you're yes, going to do over a glass of wine. And Absolutely, we'll go and fish and chips. Corkies.
0: Corkies, at Cork Bay is the place to go for fish and chips. Okay, I'm going. You're taking us. I Thank will you. see you then. <laughs> Thanks, Karen.